You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger, Cinemagic. Hey everybody, welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I am J.D. Rieger, and I have to tell y'all, this episode means quite a lot to me personally, because my guest is Memphis filmmaker, entrepreneur, co-owner of Black Lodge Video, as it turns out, and my ex-little brother-in-law, that's a thing, Mr. Chad Allen Barton. Chad and I go back a long ways, relatively anyway. I've known him since he was in grade school, as I used to go out with and briefly even be married to his big sister, Amanda, who is sadly no longer with us. Chad and I probably have a painful and cathartic deep dive into that in us at some point. But for this conversation, I decided to focus on Chad's work in film, primarily the feature film Lights, Camera, Bullshit, which is now streaming for free on Amazon Prime, and the brand new short film It's Me, Cranefly, which just dropped on YouTube. Uh, It's kind of a long talk, actually, even though we didn't get into the other thing. So I think we should just get right into it. And again, it means a lot to me to have him on the show. Here's my conversation with Chad Allen Barton. All right, man. Hey, Chad. Thanks for being on the show. How's it going? It's going well, man. How are are you? Uh, You know, as good as we all can be right now, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I've been asking all my guests this, and I guess I'll start with this with you, is, you know, how... You know, how are you doing, um, you know, as an artist uh, living with quarantine or pandemic conditions? Uh, you know, what, have your projects been affected by the shutdowns? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, first of all, just kind of general statement. I don't really know how anybody's being creative right now. Uh, there's, I mean, Christ, the amount of like depression and anxiety that I know everybody else is having right now at the same, but I, I definitely am having it's, uh, it was borderline impossible for at least the first few months to do anything for me because I was just like, we just moved. And also like we moved the week, all this, everything shut down, uh, into a new place. And so we were getting all that set up and I put all this stuff out of my mind. And then about a month goes by and I'm like, yeah, I should probably try to, got all this time i should probably try to do all this creative stuff and it's like no the dread is starting to set in now this is real (laughs) and this isn't going away for possibly years so like holy shit yeah and then it wasn't until the past past couple weeks that i was like no we need to like start trying to get back to not normal but get back to doing stuff yeah getting back to having a life yeah, exactly. And like I don't know. The I'm I'm I mean as far as filmmaking goes, it's basically borderline impossible to make anything right now, but I mean as always the the limits uh create new creative opportunities, but they definitely aren't the opportunities I wanted. <laughs> um because, I mean, what? you can't be in a room with more than uh, a, a couple of people. Um, and, like, me and my DP, we've been in contact for the, the past two months or so because we've worked on stuff. And we keep track of where we go and all that so we don't, like, infect each other. But, like, you can't do that with your 
every actor you come in contact with and all of your crew that you might pull in for a day or something. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. You've got, you've got a new thing that just dropped on YouTube called It's Me, Crane Fly. And I, I guess, do I assume correctly that that was filmed before the shutdowns took place? Yeah, as as with most things, it, it was something that I shot like a long time ago. I mean, it's like at this point, it was almost exactly a year ago. And we just had so many other things in the pipeline that this thing got kind of pushed back, 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 back. And it was one of those things probably right around March is when it would have dropped initially and then again all this happened um but that's that's did you decide to hold off was it finished and you decided to hold off on it or did you just decide to to wait to finish it uh i fell into a pit of despair and then didn't finish it (laughs) (laughs) that's that's really it so option c (laughs) yes (laughs) no yeah just everything went on hold i just didn't i just didn't have the mental fortitude to deal with anything you know, it's weird that um, for me, the um, my reaction to this whole thing was kind of the opposite. But I, I think it's because I was so depressed in my other life that getting out of it, even though it was under like the worst conditions imaginable, was still so freeing yeah. to me that I couldn't help but, you know, just dive into every creative idea that I've been burying for the last five years. Yeah, I mean... I, I, I wish that would have been my reaction. It was just, I, maybe it was also the fact that I was like, wow, we can't finish shooting this other feature we've been working on as like, you know, it's like slowly sinking in that it's like, none of this stuff can get done. So and I tell really me, tell me about turn. that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, oh, you, no, were working, you were working on a, a whole other feature that got interrupted. Yeah, so we were working on another feature called Soft Boy that my friend Aaron Ivory wrote, uh, and we go way back. We're from we went to high school together actually, although we weren't really friends in high school. But and and he's um, involved in the in the Cranefly one as well, right? Yes, he's actually the lead in in the Cranefly one, and actually the uh, other uh, the lady that's in it who does she's just a voice uh, because we were trying to be economical on it. So there's actually no actors in the, in in the scene together. So I guess that is a one we could have shot under quarantine, but we didn't. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we were shooting Soft Boy, and one of the key scenes that was left was a big party scene that was going to be like we were going to try to, I don't know, throw some massive-ass party, maybe try to pay a few people to show up. But it was going to be like 50 people in a confined house all next to each other, you know like right. party scene and that's impossible for the foreseeable future and we're like well jesus christ we have that we have like and there's just no remember, way there's around like there's no way around no. that scene for that for that movie no so what what we ended up doing is we just changed it and it's uh which is too bad i mean that that was where a lot of the weird symbolism and stuff was gonna play into the movie and that, that and i i live and breathe that stuff but uh <laughs> now that's kind of gone and it's just going to be him waking up the next day in his house and we'll just shoot that in Aaron's apartment and he's by himself because of spoiler yeah, alert quarantine. Yeah. I mean, it's just <laughs> what it is. Um, but I mean, you've said, you said that you, um, you've had issues being creative, but you know, by all accounts, it seems the opposite is true. You just dropped a short film on YouTube, and you, your first, your debut feature, 
um, lights, camera, bullshit just debuted on Amazon prime. Uh, tell me, tell me about that. How did, how do you even get a movie on Amazon prime? Um, so essentially we have an account with them. It has to clear, uh, certain bars or whatever. And that was a gigantic pain in the ass because some of the biggest stuff was just clearing the, uh, artwork because they wouldn't, uh, tell me what level of censorship I had to do on the fucking artwork so I, so I could say bullshit, even though if you go over to Penn and Teller's bullshit TV show, they could say bullshit on their shit and I can't. <laughs> but anyway, so that was the biggest fucking hurdle I had to clear is because some dipshits in some warehouse in fucking California that run all this shit wouldn't just tell me what I had to do. I was like, I was like pleading with them. I was like, just tell me which letters I have to like put out. It was like, cause I, cause I have to send you something and then I have to wait for a month for you to tell me if it's good to go. And then they go, no, no, no explanation. Why just no, that's not good enough. And I was like, just tell me which ones you want me to do. And they're like, I can't do that, sir. And we can't talk about this anymore. I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> so very odd process. Um, but yeah. that did take forever to get on there. Um, I had a similar then, experience getting my podcast on Apple Music. Um, they sent me a rejection initially, and they sent me a list of things that it could be. <laughs> like a list of five things that could that are commonly that are common reasons why podcasts are rejected. And they were like, uh, "That's pretty helpful." In all likelihood, your pod you commit one of these five sins. So uh, you know, and lo and behold, I was committing two of them. So um, I, I went back and changed it. My episodes are no longer numbered. You may notice. Um, but anyway, that's just a side. Oh please, yeah, please. No, we, please. we we ran into that too. Like they because we do podcasts and stuff. Some although this again kind of like killed a lot of that. Um, but yeah, we we were trying to number our podcast too, and they basically told us to go fuck ourselves. So, and that was and fun. it's and it's weird because so many other podcasts on Apple Music or Apple Podcasts mm -hmm. still are numbered, and yet, mm -hmm. you know, a small guys can't do that. But um, nope, not at all. <laughs> uh, God, but. I, I don't mean to take a turn. You know, we don't need to talk about uh, posting my podcast. Please um, tell go. Let's go back to talking about lights, camera, bullshit. Tell me about making that movie and 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 the whole process. Uh, so lights, camera, bullshit started in 2011, and it originally started as a pilot for a TV show that we were going to do. And it was about 44 pages, so about 45 minutes or so. And uh, we shot that first round. And for some reason, every time we go back to shoot that movie, it's always in the dead of winter. And it's always like uh, 10 degrees outside. Uh, <laughs> I, I got a lot of shit from that from the actors over time. Um, <laughs> but so we went and shot that first round, um, where which includes stuff like... Um, all the office scenes when there's still an office before it burns down. After you watch the movie, you'll know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, and we actually built that office in a gigantic space that we were allowed to use. And um, we got for free, I believe. And that was my first experience with building an entire set. And it was in like a, I want to say like a 150 by 150 foot, 
room or something. So, I mean, it was like a decent sized thing and the ceilings were, you know, 12 feet or something. So we could hang lights if we wanted to and stuff too. So it was kind of like being on a soundstage for all intents and purposes. And, um, and so we did all that, uh, did the gorilla filmmaking nonsense with it. Um, and we got done with it. Eric Tate, who's the lead in it, and who's also the lead in Craig Burr's Poor and Hungry. Um, he was like, well, we were talking and we were like, you know, talking about the next feature or whatever. And he's like, well, why don't we just finish this one out and you just write another half of the movie. I mean, you basically just left it off at a halfway point anyway, like you would uh, for a pilot. And I was like, so just finish this out and we'll just make this our first feature. And I was like, okay. And that was stupid because it took forever to finish this. <laughs> um, so then we proceed to go back in and start the second half of filming, which was, um, I believe, a year and a half later or two years later or something. And um, had a different DP. There's like four or five, there are four DPs over the course of the life of this film. Um, there's two for the first half, there's one for the second half, and then there's one for the pickups. The pickups were like four years after the, <laughs> after the fucking second half of shooting. Uh, and this is kind of like sort of what the movie's about, which is just the nature of trying to make, um, any sort of film without any money or crew or, uh, means at all and so the film you know obviously so life reflects art we end up doing all of this the same things that are in it like almost getting arrested for being on the street and one of our crew members tried to walk into the wrong house to take a shit and almost got a gun pulled on him uh and killed over trying to take a shit (laughs) and the cops show up and we're like talking to him and they're like hey was you trying to break into somebody's house and we're like what are you talking about <laughs> and his and his and his partner is behind him next uh, closer to the squad car and he speaks up and he goes oh no man they're good they got they got the clacker they got the clacker and we like look down and like the ad has like the slate in his hand the clacker that clacked to oh you know, yeah start yeah. the scene action and we we're like oh this this little $15 piece of shit just saved us from having to go downtown and explain ourselves. <laughs> that makes us look official. Yeah. But, it, uh, I mean, think it, be it, man. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, there's just, there's all kinds of weirdness that happens when you're making a film because, uh, it's one of those things where you're not supposed to do things like that. You're supposed to go to work and then come home and then stay home. And then maybe you go out and go to a bar maybe. And right now you're not even supposed to do that, but people do it anyway. Um, But you know, you don't go out and try to make things out in the streets. That's insane. And so you definitely get odd looks and people staring at you while they're driving by. And you can you can feel the like what the fuck are they doing right now? Look, while th- those people are probably just driving home to go sit on the couch and watch something that somebody else made, which is really funny. Uh, and 
so don't you think that tension is essential though to the artist experience maybe i'm just romanticizing it totally, a little bit totally but... i i I, th- I, th- I think it is uh i i think it really is because like you have to have the basically uh what, what is that called um uh the theory in in physics that basically oh you're asking the wrong guy about physics that they don't want to move unless acted upon and like humans are exactly like that as well we're we're not going to our our default space is to sit like a lump and be reactive and not proactive and, yes and sit there until we die that's that's supposed to be what you do and and like every instinct in your body like tells you to like not get up and go do this thing <laughs> and and totally. you have to be the one to force this sack of meat to go do the thing that your brain is like, if I don't do this, I will be horribly depressed for the rest of my life. (laughs) I will, I will have died in shame if I don't finish this. And, uh, and that's, that's how you, uh, drag out a movie for eight years (laughs) and then finally finish it and put it on Amazon prime. Eight years. I didn't realize it had been that long. Yeah, uh, I think it premiered in Indie Memphis in 2000. I was there. 16, 15? I can't remember. 14? Fuck, I don't know. <laughs> it's, um, it, it, it premiered for like friends and family or something in like 2013, I want to say, or 14 maybe. Um, and a lot of people saw it then. And then that's a completely different cut than what lives on Amazon now. There's pro- There's been three cuts and the most recent one was uh this this feels like a very cleansing experience and borderline like silly to say this but uh i was like okay we're gonna finish this it's gonna go on on prime we know that and so i i've always had a issue because i thought i thought it needed something to like completely solidify the story and tie it together and sam bear who runs Asbest Films, and he just moved to back to Connecticut a couple years ago. But he made a film called I Filmed Your Death uh, that's really great, too, and it, it should be coming out at some point. We, we were basically making our films at the exact same time, almost. And one day, like 2000, early 2019, I was like, hey, I'm getting ready to finish this film. And I know you got Michael Horace from Twin Peaks to be in your thing. And I was like, how did you do that? How much does he cost and all this stuff? And he was like, he was like, well, I'm not going to hand out his number or anything. I'm just going to give you the same uh, ability to get in contact with that I did. And so he gives it to me. And I just take a chance in the gamble. And I send him this very like heartfelt email about, how long I've been working on this fucking thing and like how big a fan I am of like Lynch and Twin Peaks and all that jazz and, um, and how I just really would mean a lot for him to be in the movie and we could come out to him to record it and all this other stuff. Cause I know, I know he lives, uh, out on the West coast and I don't want to give anything away, but so we, you know, don't hear anything for a week or so. And then I just get a phone call. Uh, and I work at the Pink Palace part-time uh, to pay the bills. And so I get a phone call at the Pink Palace, and it's this West Coast area code. And I'm like, huh. And so I pick up the phone, 
you know, and he's like, Hey, it's, it's Michael Horace. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was expecting an email back and he's like, no, I'm going to go ahead and call him. And he's like, Hey, I'm getting ready to film this, uh, uh, the new call of the wild they're doing with, uh, Harrison Ford. And I, I just, I just want to know when, when you're thinking about doing this. Cause I don't want it, I don't want it to overlap. And I was like, fine, wh- whatever works <laughs> wow. for you, man, you just tell me. <laughs> and it's, I was like, you know, we'll come out there and do it. And then, you know, we're talking for a second, and I don't—I don't really know what to even say. I'm just letting him talk, and then it gets towards the end of the conversation, and we're pretty set on like, okay, I'm gonna fly out there and do this, and I don't—I don't even have any money really. I'm like, I'm, I'm about to do this, and I have like, you know, four hundred dollars or something, and I'm about to go out there and try to uh, buy a ticket and get up there uh, on that on that money, and uh, and then I was like, but how much how much is it gonna cost? You know, how much do you want? And he was like, Oh, dude, don't worry about it. Just come out here. We'll we'll record it at my house. And I've got I've got like a little recording studio in the basement kind of set up. And I was like, Oh my God, thank you. Like this is crazy that <laughs> this is happening right now. And so That's amazing. I yeah. go out to LA and meet up with my friends and I'm like, Hey, we're gonna drive over to record Michael Horse. And so we drive up the coast and go see him and is i mean we got a little interview the interview's on the blu-ray if you buy the blu-ray um but he has his his voiceover is great um he was super uh he he just he had lots of really thoughtful questions about the voiceover obviously because he's a trained voice actor plus just actor in general um and what's it like being in the moment questions What's it like being in the moment with someone like that where, you know, maybe I don't know if, you know, you feel, you know, sort of small time compared to a person like that that you're working with. And then that person's kind of looking to you for guidance. Is that a sort yeah, of a exactly. surreal situation to be in? Totally. And like you can you can it, it's hard to separate the part where it's like David Lynch was directing this guy. And it's like and now he's and now you are listening to me. It's like I you know, so you feel like a fucking idiot and probably rightfully so compared to the other people that this person has dealt with. I mean, he, he, he had just gotten back from, uh, doing stuff on call of the wild too. And he was talking about working with CGI wolves and stuff that aren't there. And, um, and so when it came to actually like directing that part of it, um, I, I tried to make notes beforehand, but then, he had brought up some stuff that maybe I hadn't even thought of in terms of the, the, the readings of it. And so then I have to sit there and think on my feet as quickly as possible to be able to, to, you know, decipher what he's trying to say to me and then convey back to him something I don't. And, and then also trying to feel like, you know, a fraud in the moment because this guy has dealt with like super high profile people and you're just this like rinky dink dude who drove up from memphis to come get this guy to do four minutes of voiceover (laughs) for a thing that who knows if anybody's ever even gonna fucking see it and i'm and Um, i'm sure it would be very easy to just go along with like sure mr actor however you want to say it sir you know or whatever right well and um, like what what what's helpful is like he was i mean he's fucking amazing and so like a lot of it was just like 
you know, oh, those are good choices. Those are good choices. But but there was something that was like, you know, he's asking a question. And I was like, no, it's not like that. It's like this. And um, I feel like one of them was that moment of like uh, in the voiceover, he's saying like, I think it's the beginning. He starts asking some rhetorical questions and uh, the the way I think he was reading it was it, it, they weren't rhetorical questions or something. I can't remember exactly how, how it was happening, but you know, the, the, it wasn't like I was just like green lighting, whatever he was saying. It was like, no, 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 there's, there is like a rhyme or reason <laughs> to what's happening right now. And we need to go along with it. And he got it. And he was not like weird about taking direction at all from some n- nobody. He was totally cool. And he said before we left that he does this because there's so few opportunities now for people to come up and uh, actually do this kind of work anymore and have any sort of recognition. And he's like, and he's just, just like anybody, anything I can do to help the up and comers, I'll do it. And that's why he does it for free. And I was like, well, shit. <laughs> that's, that's very cool. Do you, do you feel um, you know, validated or legitimized by having him on the film. Totally. Uh, and again, I have a lot. I mean, Sam Bear is the fucking person who initially found this this wealth of uh, the horse, <laughs> and uh, and so all credit goes to him. But it definitely feels uh, validating to have it finished. Number one, but then also to have that. Um, encapsulating voiceover from horse in there as well. I mean, just because, I mean, number one, I love Deputy Hawk, but also, I mean, I love all the voice stuff he did, like Gargoyles and all that. I mean, I remember liking that character before I knew, I knew who uh, uh, Michael Horse was. Um, but all of that, plus we shot a new little opening for it to go along with his voiceover. Uh, and that was fun little camera trickery where we did to make it look like a train was coming down a tunnel. And then at the end uh, of the voiceover session, I was like, can you just say anything that you want to say right now? And he was like, what? And I was like, just like, what's on your mind right now? And he was like, Okay, and he goes into this, he launches into this thing about conservation and about how people think that they're more important than they actually are. And that's the voiceover that ends the entire movie. And I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> this is wow. like 100% perfect. And he hit it like on nail on the head and it was off the cuff. And it sounds prepared. I'm going to have to rewatch the film now and really pay closer attention to the voiceover because, you know, it's something that you kind of, when you watch a movie, you don't always, you know, dial, dial into um, so much, but now um, this, that, that's a cool story. It makes me want to give it a second watch or maybe now, I guess it would be a third watch now. <laughs> but yeah, totally. I mean, there's uh, it's especially voiceover stuff for the most part, like you kind of, um, you don't you don't think about it that closely because most of the time it feels like it's like throw throw away or totally in a world or it was like forced yeah forced to be in it a la blade runner uh you know stuff like or like dark city um 
and it and it feels forced a lot of times or it can be like the noir voiceover thing where it's kind of like 80 percent of it is fluff or idiosyncrasies of the character and so you're just like okay i mean i just need to understand like the two percent of it that's about the plot so i can know what the next thing is about to be you right. don't necessarily listen to everything the, the character is saying Well, Chad, um, the last thing I want to ask you about, um, and I guess this will be um, a good way to end. It's a little bit more personal because, you know, I've known you a long time and I remember taking you to the movies, you know, a lot as a very little kid. So, yeah. um, but then we sort of lost touch after that. So I'm curious about your process. Like, how did you go from being the kid that I used to take to the movies to being a film director? Um, I mean, I think at least part of it would have to do with how movie centric, like my family was like my dad, you know, owned a video store, owned a video store. And so I was at a video store a lot growing up. Whatever happened and, to those video stores? Do you mind me asking? Uh, the video store, well, the, uh, principal owner who was really rich died. He died of like a heart attack or something. Yikes. And so my dad was not, uh, it, it was not, and is not wealthy enough to actually like mitigate the losses of a video store in the late nineties. <laughs> so, right. uh, you know, they were already starting to downsize and stuff cause video stores were starting to die off. And, um, right. So that just, that just made it quick. It was like, Nope, done. Close everything down, liquidate everything fire sale and, i still um, have a box of screener tapes from your dad's <laughs> video store somewhere that's funny well what's what's really interesting is so uh black lodge in in memphis uh where i'm part owner of over there now is a I video store i didn't know you were a part owner i didn't know that at all i yeah. would have asked you about that a whole lot sooner <laughs> but what's funny is uh a lot of the uh, collection that was left over at Cinemagic at the tail end of it, uh, Matt came in from Black Lodge and bought a substantial amount of it to fill in. So, uh, you know, a good chunk so of what was left it is sort of at lives Lodge on. right now. Yeah, that I'm residing over, I guess, in a weird way. That's, that's... I told that to my dad, and he just kind of went, huh, and that was it. <laughs> There was no there was no poeticness to it for him. He was just like, well, that's kind of weird. <laughs> that's that seems about right. Um, <laughs> yeah, because you because you know my father, so <laughs> I mean not super well, and um and I imagine you know like what he thought of me at the time was probably like, oh my god, here's who's this guy? You know, I mean, being... I think I, when you say I don't know him super well, I think that's that's the level that everybody knows him or, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, we did, he's not forthcoming we have, with, we did have some mildly uncomfortable meals together at Applebee's. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's knowing someone, but that I would say is, um, the best way to know my dad. So like, I think, yeah, I think, I think, you know him about as well as, uh, my, my, girlfriend uh rachel who i've been together with for <laughs> six years you probably know each other about about the same about the same as <laughs> so yo mind if we take a breather 
Before we get to the real commercial and then the rest of my talk with Chad, I'd like to ask you really quickly to consider becoming a supporter of me and the show by subscribing at patreon.com slash jdrieger. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash j-d-r-e-a-g-e-r. If you subscribe, you can get access to ad-free versions of the show, plus exclusive music downloads, blog posts, and other stuff. And honestly, you'd be doing me a big favor. So please visit patreon.com slash jdrieger if you can. And now... Before we get back to how you became a film director, which I really do want to hear about, I will I will ask you about what's going on with Black Lodge right now with the pandemic. Like, are, how are you, um, you know, are you still like serving customers in any way or are you just completely shut down or what's what's going on there? Uh, we were shut down for the first couple of months and then we just opened back up uh, curbside and it's been slowly trying to figure out a way to... Uh, take an experience that the whole point of it was that it was supposed to be physical because that's what separates us from Netflix and Amazon and all that stuff is that you get to go into a physical store and physically look at movies. Uh, and so now and, we're trying to take and that maybe experience even talk and put to it on about it. Yeah, exactly. That was the other side of it is that like, you know, you can pick up a movie and be like, I don't know what the fuck this is. Or you can say, I love this movie. And then one of the employees goes, well, I love that movie too. And this is influenced by three other movies. And let me show you those movies. And you're like, oh shit, I didn't know that. That's the whole point. And yeah. so it's weird to having to walk up outside of the store and look through some windows and see maybe, you know, a tenth of the collection in the in the windows and trying to basically just recall what you want to see from memory is is difficult for people. Um, I look forward to the cases going down, which fuck knows when that's going to be because nobody can be responsible. Um, yeah, I was about to say, is, when, do you guys have any, I mean, given how wild things are in Tennessee, like, uh, or in Memphis, um, ain't no idea whatsoever of how, when things might open up further? No, I mean, zero, because the cases are so high right now that like, uh, they're both, getting that way in Illinois again up here, too. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's going both the wrong and, way up here. Both me and Matt were just like, you know, in May, we were saying like July, mid-July, the cases should be getting low by then, and then we can open the store up. And we were starting to plan for that. And then it just fucking got even higher. We're like, what the hell is happening right now? And so people keep coming up and asking, when can we go back into the store? I don't know when you wear a mask, because you're not wearing a mask right now. <laughs> Yeah. like this is simple and, it, and most people do wear a mask when they come up so like it's not to say uh it's not to say that people in memphis and shelby county aren't being safe i would say most of them are but it's the problem of people that there's not really that many people that i've seen that are defiantly oh, i'm not gonna do this and well, blah 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 and you can't infringe on customer- my right. it's most it's mostly uh people that well i i, I just mean out and about because our yeah, customer yeah. base is not going to be the type that's going to do that stuff. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And, uh, but even out and about going to the grocery store and all that stuff, it really mainly just seems like people that just somehow this is just not hit home. And they're just like, huh? And they're just kind of floating through life. Wee. <laughs> and they don't really fucking, you know, see the severity of this thing. And, 
uh, that's more of the people that I run into than anything. I mean, I remember feeling like that as a younger person when, you know, like SARS and some of the other like lesser pandemics or whatever, you know, things that didn't affect the United States as much as they did other parts of the world. Yeah. And I remember being totally laissez-faire and, you know, uncaring about them. Um, but that said, it was never to the extent that things are now. And it's hard right. for me to imagine being able to still ignore it at this point but there clearly still are people who are in that mind that you know that mindset totally it's it's insane <laughs> I, don't wanna, I just don't get it at this point i mean you have to be willfully ignorant but people are good right. at that all right chad take take me from cinemagic video to directing a movie that you could now watch on amazon prime uh okay so let's see um god i would say it was so video store and then i start actually i would say so the video store is starting to die and i get a uh netflix subscription secretly because my uh, cinemagic did not carry interesting or weird stuff it was it was a mainstream thing and so like you couldn't get anime yeah, was, or anything from there my dad it was a blockbuster similar was. you know blockbuster right. knock, knockoff and that's not an you know that's not an insult no i mean but 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 that's what kind of movies you're going to get from there and if you want anything that deviates from that you're not going to get it that that's what black lodge was for even you know back then um and so i got it to i think watch cowboy bebop for the first time and so uh i remember you know getting it getting this stuff in the mail for a while i think i think i got blade runner and that was the first time i watched blade runner and then i watched blade runner like 20 more times after that because i was just that was the first movie that i saw that i was like oh wait you can do things with movies besides just that that story was fun that stuff <laughs> exploded <laughs> that was cool it's like no you can like say things with movies <laughs> um and like consciously knowing that like i mean you could talk to a kid and you can uh pull from them what they got from the movie but they're not actively thinking about it um and so there's that that point in your life where you um start to critically think about the things that you're you're watching uh maybe some people never get to that point and that's fine i mean the, there's plenty of movies that are for just like and they're just you know like rides that you get on and get off and um and those are fun too uh but i remember watching blade runner and then being like holy shit like ridley scott like said something with this movie and um and then that's when i started thinking about like you know i could say something with this i feel like I, I was i think i was trying to write at the time like short stories or something and i was already trying to be expressive in some way and then that happened and i just felt the need to want to do it and my friend and i made little dinky ass stupid uh movies growing up on his like um high eight camera and 
uh, we had fun with that. And so then that's when I called him up, Shelby Baldock, who lives in LA now. And, uh, and I was like, Hey, we shouldn't, we should make a movie. I know you've been like thinking about wanting to do that for a while since we were kids basically. And so that's when we made our first movie called, I can't turn it off. The, the poster is somewhere in here. Rachel hates it because it's like two gigantic, uh, looming, uh, cloaked figures or whatever and she's just like I was, it just looks gross i want like pretty things in my house and i was like okay that's fine <laughs> and it's like a mass it's like a massive poster too it's like it's like uh 40 by 27 or whatever the like standard size movie poster that's huge yeah I've, yeah i've never i've never seen this movie either by the way Yes, and probably I, I I could send you a link to it, but I I don't really want to show it to anybody. Uh, but the uh, um, what's interesting though is we so we finished it in 2010, so this is ten ten years ago, and um, and then we decide that we're going to show it at a studio, and we go through the whole process of trying to book the the film in there because none of this stuff exists at the time really the only other people that have really tried to do anything like this might have been like mike mccarthy or craig brewer and so we're talking to the film booker there about trying to get this movie you know it was like actually going into a theater chain and having a meeting with the film booker the guy who books avatar (laughs) and tell him like hey we're trying to we're trying to put this movie in in here and we're just we're fucking 21 year old kids and so we're talking to him and i think he slowly starts to realize okay okay, it's a short film it's a short film all right that's weird i didn't think anybody would ever want to actually show one in a theater (laughs) by itself and we're like well it's like 30 minutes long so we're thinking about maybe showing it twice and um and he's like, okay, well, let's just do this and blah, blah, blah. And we talk to him for a minute and, uh, and then we leave. And not long after this, by the way, this process gets kind of like streamlined and you don't have to go meet anybody anymore. And they just like, they just four wallet and give you, you know, you just pay 200 bucks or whatever it is and rent it out. And I think part of that is probably because of us wasting that dude's time. Uh, <laughs> and so we, um, we go and show this this movie, and again, it's like thirty minutes long, and it stars uh, Blake Doris and Jason Gerhard. And Blake lives somewhere out west now, and Jason actually moved back here recently. And I love Jason, and he was also in this new project that is probably going to either come out this week or next week called Dunn County. Uh, it's a podcast that we recorded at the end of last year that we would like to turn into a feature film. It is a feature film script. We read it out loud. Uh, at Lodge, at Black Lodge. Oh, neat. And um, and he's there, and it's a cast of like 11. And the recording will come out later, too, because we, we actually did shoot it. And it's impressive to see all of them up on the stage together. Um, but, oh, so anyway, so then we show this film, and it's uh, uh, a packed house. It was We sold out the first show. It was 120 nine or 27 seats or something like that at five bucks a pop. And then the second show we sold, I think half capacity. So like, um, you know, 200 people or whatever saw this movie that night and that plus like t-shirt sales. And so I think we made like a thousand dollars in one night. We were like, Holy fuck. Wow. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is how it's going to be forever. <laughs> yeah. And, that's, and so and we it's were, been, we were and it's been a thousand bucks a night ever since then. Right, Chad? <laughs> <laughs> and so we were super excited after making that film and we didn't even, you know, think about the fact that it wasn't very good. And, uh, um, I mean, that's kind of hindsight. That's hindsight a little bit. You know, at the time when you've just made something and you're excited about it, you probably don't have enough distance from it to say, uh, you know, whether it's good or not. And, you know, and it's, it's really easy to criticize something you've done, you know, because now you're, you're more excited about every other thing you've done and you've seen how much, and you've seen how much better it is and how much you've grown as a filmmaker. But, you know, that first thing is probably still good in its own way. Yeah, I mean it's in and it's it's an important film because we learned to do a lot of things on that uh shoot like uh we didn't have a lot of equipment and we had a friend who had like wood a woodworking shop and so like we needed like a handheld like rig like some like a shoulder rig you could put something on and our friend was just like well, I'll just build one man you're like okay and he built it out of like 2 by 4s <laughs> and <laughs> It's, and then we didn't have a boom pole and he had like a, uh, I mean, he had like a mic stand, you know, <laughs> like what you would put like a vocal mic on and he just like, you know, ripped the stem out and like put some padding or something on it. I can't remember. And then you could boom it out. I mean, it was heavy as fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That shit sucked. Um, but we did that. I mean, that's how we did the, the first movie and most of it was, uh, improvised we had done i can't remember what movie we got this from there was some movie oh it might have been uh uh paul thomas anderson did that for before he did um hard eight um he did a completely improvised thing that i don't i don't think it ever saw the light of day it's just a story basically um that i later heard John C. Riley recount to me in its entirety when we went to go see uh, Magnolia. Uh, I was when I was out in L.A. I think it was during the Michael Horse thing, and I was like, I want to go see you know like one of these cool film screens. And they're like, Oh, John C. Riley's showing Magnolia on thirty-five millimeter. Like, Fuck, let's go to that. And then he, and so he starts recounting the story of going out and uh, shooting uh, stuff with Paul Thomas Anderson just off the cuff. And him like uh, calling up somebody. I can't remember who's calling up. Oh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He calls up Philip Seymour Hoffman and is like, hey, we're riding around. I'm dressed like a cop. Uh, Paul has a camera or whatever. We're just going to shoot this improv scene real quick. And he's like, I'm a cop. I'm coming into your house. You're like a drug dealer or something. I can't remember what he told him. And he's like, and you're just trying to get us out. Or whatever, and so they just they just show up, and of course Philip Seymour Hoffman is just like on like immediately, and um, and so they start going getting into it, and then they keep escalating and escalating and escalating, and uh, finally, uh, John C. Riley goes for his gun, which he obviously can't have because he's dressed up like a cop and it's like, you know, it also be a felony to hold a gun. And so he goes for his gun in the scene while they're filming this. And he realizes that obviously I can't have a gun. And so he goes, he looks down and he goes, Oh fuck, I lost my gun. <laughs> and, it, and then that becomes that scene in Magnolia where he loses his gun. Oh uh, man. <laughs> you know, um, 
You know what's funny? But, that so they, Magnolia is what? definitely one of the films that I have a Cinemagic screener copy of somewhere in a box, like back in Memphis. Oh, really? Oh, for sure. <laughs> that's cool. Um, but so, like, based off of that, that's where we do the scenes from that movie. Uh, I can't turn it off. And then I go on to make uh, another film, which shall be called Solitary Mets, that's about our, our friend Charlie Metz and her uh, being a Santa Claus for a liquor store. And uh, then she tries to find true love and gets drugged and goes on this insane trip and sees a giant person dressed as a rat and other stuff. But there's that one. And that one premiered on father's day. (laughs) We showed it at father's day at the old high tone. (laughs) Did you, did you drag, uh, did you drag pops out for that one? No, they, they weren't going to go down to a bar, uh, (laughs) on the, on a screen that was wavering because of the fans, because you know, it's father's day. It's hot. Sure. (laughs) And, uh, and there's probably 10 people there, and this is the next screening we have. And we're like, oh, it's not always going to be $1,000. <laughs> Did you have the T-shirts all lined up and everything, too? Uh, I, I think we still just had piano man pictures, T-shirts, and stuff, too. Okay. But, um, uh, no, that would that would be really funny, but no. No, no dude, I've, and, I've been there, man. I have booked a huge, you know, shows and, you know, printed up many t-shirts and then been, you know, seeing the crowd of 17 people milling about and, and like, oh man. Yeah, that's, uh, exactly. Everybody take two, you know. <laughs> two for the price of one. Yeah. Uh, and so then we make that and then we make, um something else i don't remember and then uh at that point i think i'm at i'm in the program at u of m uh to do film stuff and shelby had just left i guess and i got into it a little bit later because i was doing the retail thing and uh and then i kind of quickly realized like uh this isn't gonna go anywhere and then that's when I decided to go back to school, mainly to go back to school because I knew I could get grants and stuff and have enough money to where I could not work nearly as much and could focus on trying to make films. Um, And that was actually really the impetus to go back to school. Um, And it worked because then I got to make uh, supposed to be this way, which is on our website. It's all the way down at the bottom. Um, I made that in an old high school friend's apartment who moved to Midtown. And uh, I made that one. It's 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 fun enough. It's also very weird. But um, and then during all of that, uh, pretty much is while is why uh, like LCB is happening pretty much after Solitary Mets through me making four or five other films um, and trying to finish lights camera during this whole time. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Well, Chad, I think we've done, I think we've done quite well for ourselves here for this interview. Is there anything, um, anything we didn't talk about or anything um, you'd like to plug um, that we haven't already talked about on the show? 
Um, uh, if you'd like to support us, Piano Man Pictures, uh, you may go to uh, patreon.com and look up Piano Man Pictures. Uh, we have different tiers there for your support. I know the um, tiers well. <laughs> and um, but in but in seriousness, if you do that, then we can actually like uh, afford to make more stuff and make it more quickly. Um, do you have? I assume you have projects lined up for the future. You know, um, God willing, oh, and the creek don't rise, kind of a thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got. Um, my friend Stephen Teague's movie that is a uh, fake documentary about ham boning. Uh, <laughs> for those that don't know, it is the thing where you slap your body with your hands. I'm familiar. You should you should get Muck Sticky involved in that. He's a he's an expert. <laughs> really, ham boner. Yes, for sure. There's a hilarious <laughs> when um you know I was uh, involved in the five dollar cover shit with uh, two way radio and yeah. we had and Craig had us like film this crazy video scene where it was like we were playing one of our songs and Al Capone and Muck Sticky were just hanging out in the studio with us. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, because that's that's how we all are. And um and yeah Muck and Muck Sticky starts doing the ham bone during our song. And it's it's in the video still if you can I don't know if it exists <laughs> anywhere. Awesome. But there is a two way radio uh, video somewhere and Muck Sticky is in it doing the ham bone. <laughs> um, that's awesome. <laughs> but, uh, the uh, the the impetus in of where ham boning comes from in the fake documentary is that uh, the main guy Hambone Sloan uh, <laughs> gets uh, gets into a bee's nest, much like uh, Winnie the Pooh. Um, and because of that, um, the bees come out and then he starts slapping on his body to get the bees off. And then uh -huh. like, it's, it's in, uh, we shot it with a, a stills camera and did it in burst mode so that that way you could get the jittery kind of old film school, uh, old, old film style to it. And then you start to see through this jittery thing, like him, like rhythmically hitting his body and being like, Oh, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> It's like that scene in um, History of the World uh, where he's throwing, where uh, the caveman's throwing the rocks on the guy's foot, and he's like, "Oh yeah, this this sounds great." So he starts throwing more rocks. Exactly. That look of recognition sweeps across Sid Caesar's face. He's like, "Aha, music." Precisely. <laughs> and so. Um... That I, I'm I'm a big fan of that one, but that's another one that's getting held up because of all this stuff too. Um, we needed to make up artists because there's a lot of stuff where it's it's being told over the course of like the hundred years of Hambone history or whatever, <laughs> and so we have to do like stuff from the '70s and stuff from the '40s and stuff from the '90s and shoot them different ways. But we have to uh, anyway. So yeah, it it just requires a lot of different people. Uh, to be in the room to be able to do this namely like age makeup and stuff and yeah uh, it's a really invasive <laughs> procedure to be able to do uh, that uh but anyway so there's there's that one and that one's a lot of fun uh there's uh the dog police documentary that we've been working on for years oh man and we're gonna try to finish up soon if you need if you need somebody else to just say on camera how much they love dog police, please call me. 
Yes, we're we're, we're going to do that. <laughs> we we need we need more just uh, stuff with people recounting their their relationship yes. to their personal relationship to dog police. And and the amount of copies of of dog police that I've sold at record stores, both uh, now in Memphis and Chicago, like please please talk to me about that. <laughs> yes, yes, we're going to do it. We're going to do it now. <laughs> um, but that one's fun, and we got to interview. Um, Larry McConkey, who's one of the inventors of the Steadicam, and he's the person who actually shot the music video, and he's Martin Scorsese's Steadicam operator. <laughs> and so we got to talk to him. Nice. Um, he's a cool guy. He flies his his uh, his plane to set. <laughs> that's that's how he gets around. Sheesh. Um. And uh, no, I mean it's just a really interesting weird fucking story about i mean there's that I, I can't go into all the stories there's there's too many weird stories with this and too many weird coincidences for these three dudes and how all this came together and how all of it has played out over the course of 30 years <laughs> it's very bizarre um but if anybody doesn't know what the hell dog police is just go on youtube and look up dog police uh, uh, look up dog Memphis. police by Dog Police off the album Dog Police. <laughs> and you'll find that video pretty quickly. Yeah. And it's, just it's a classic. That, it's it's a banger. That that's, a, that's, a, that's a precursor to the Copacabana shot <laughs> from Goodfellas. Um, <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, our, uh, uh, Chad, yeah. it sounds like you have a lot of amazing stuff in the works, and you've got uh, Lights, Camera, Bullshit now available on Prime, and It's Me, Crane Fly now available on YouTube. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you. It's a pleasure talking to you, too. All right. That's the show. Thank you to my guest, Chad Allen Barton. You know, there's a moment in there where he gets all worked up talking about having to censor the word bullshit for Amazon Prime and... Let's just say he reminded me of someone I used to know, and it warmed my heart a little bit. Hope that's okay to say. And uh, also, thank you for listening. Thank you to Arthur with two H's for the theme music, and I'll talk to you soon. But until then, take care, y'all. <laughs>